procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in the front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. That's you, brothers and sisters. You are of the fountain. And may God enable you to worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you bless us and keep us. We thank you for the rain that causes the plants to grow and that reminds us of the immense grace that you have poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that, Lord, as we gather before you, that you would bless us with yourself, that we would be encouraged that each and every one of us would go forth into another week knowing that we've met with God. Bless us, Lord, in the beloved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the words of good and gracious King.
you have your Bible with you, we're turning through to the Old Testament, through the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. Uh, for those of you who are visitors here, we each evening read our way through the story of the Bible, or have been for a while now. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 10. As God, by his providence, chooses our reading, we do find ourselves in the anointing of King Saul. First Samuel chapter 10, and this is God's word for you this evening. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he, return, when he turned his back to leave, Samuel gave him... Sorry. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Has Saul also among the prophets? And a man of that place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, 
of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel took the people. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now the proverb says that the dice is cast in the lap. But what it lands on is God's control, right? That's, that's really the story of, of this chapter. It's just written all over it. The Lord is sovereignly in control of everything. He ensures that all things happen in accordance with his will and with his word so that his purposes would be brought about. And, and that same God who ensures that the king is selected in just the right way is the same God who looks over every aspect of your life and mine. And so we can cast ourselves into his care. We can entrust ourselves into him and know that he looks after us and loves us. And so let's come to him in a time of prayer. Let's pray.
Do we have any children that would like to come to the front tonight? Well, I'm glad to see we've got a boys' side and a girls' side, otherwise it would be inappropriate, eh? Um, right, very good. Children, who's got friends? All of you? Yeah, oh, good. What about, the, what about the congregation? Put your hand up if you've got a friend. Just Even if just one friend, like I'm fairly sure all of you can manage one friend. If you're married and your hand's not up, you're in trouble. Okay, great, great. Okay, good. You've all got friends. Very good. Do you, do you know even, I know this is shocking, but even I have a friend. In fact, one of them's in the room. Do you know who it is? Yes, that's right, Josella. Who's my best friend? I've asked you this before. Who's my best friend? Jesus, yes, but who's my best friend in the room? Uh, well, God, God, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll just see myself out right now. Eh? So, that's right. Josella's my best friend who's fully human, uh, truly human and not also truly God. There we go. We're happy now. We've got it qualified enough. That's right. Josella is my best friend. Uh, and kids love to have best friends. This is something I still don't understand, even though I've been a kid once. My kids are like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is my best friend. And then, you know, like a month later, they're like, particularly girls. I know boys don't do this, but particularly girls do this. They're like, yeah, I've got five best friends. I'm like, how can you have five best friends? I'm like, well, because I can't pick just one. Because you know, then, then that person wouldn't feel good. So I've got five best friends. I'm like, oh, that's really nice. You've got five best friends. But you know what's really amazing is Jesus calls us his friends. That's incredible. Now, it's one thing for us to say Jesus is our friend, right? Like, I can call all sorts of people my friend. I can be like, did you know the king's my friend? But I've never met him before. He's not my friend at all. But I could say that, right? But if the king said to me... Or to you, did you know Logan's my friend? You'd be like, whoa, the king's Logan's friend. That's pretty cool. But, you know, Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, the creator of the universe, says, you are my friend. That's an amazing privilege, isn't it? This morning we talked about the fact that we're adopted as children. But, you know, we're also friends of Jesus and friends with our God. And so we can come to him. We can unburden ourselves upon him. We can talk to him about all of our cares and concerns, and he welcomes us. It's really beautiful, isn't it? Let's thank Jesus for being our friend. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for giving us a friend. Lord, what a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus, friend of sinners. What a wonderful story it is. We pray that we might know it in our hearts to be true that we would know we are loved. Jesus, help us to know your friendship, that you welcome us, us wretched sinners, and in the gospel, make us your friends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, children, and then you can find your worksheets after that.
such a friend. to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the abundant blessing that you've given us. Lord, we pray that as we bring back a portion to, to you, that you would take it and use it to care for ministers and missionaries, churches alike, that Lord, it would all be used for your glory. We pray that as a church, you would help us to be exceedingly generous, to just give and give and give. Lord, to bankrupt ourselves for the sake of the gospel and to trust you to provide all that we need. We pray that you would help us to trust you with our own bank accounts and that we would be immensely cheerful givers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, it's a pleasure for me to be able to invite Reese to come up and open up God's word. Thank you, brother. Good evening to you all. 
Thank you to Logan and thank you to the elders here at Covenant Grace. It's an absolute privilege and joy to be able to share in the Word of God with you this evening. I bring warm greetings from Woodlands all the way down in the deep south in Vicargill. And uh, I see I brought the weather with me, so that's okay. Before we begin, this is, uh, I just wanted to share with you briefly, this is one of those moments in my life where I actually get a wee chance just to look back and look at the providence of the Lord in my own life. In uh, 2017, I came up here and lived with Andrew Young for a year on Hilltop Road and studied at Grace Theological College. And I was actually here um, that day that Logan was installed as your pastor here. And that was sort of the beginnings of my ministry that year of study as well. And so for me to be able to now stand here and preach is uh, it's a special time for me. And I hope you're all rich, uh, richly blessed in the ministry of the Word at this time. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. As you've probably picked up on the theme of this service, the title of my message for you all this evening will be Jesus, the Friend of Sinners. I want to read to you from Luke 15, verses 1 to 7. This is the Word of God, as Logan says, for you this evening. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Our Father, how in need we are of your word. And Father, at this time, as we consider the words of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive them. Might we go away changed, and might you help me and stand beside me as I preach. In Jesus' name, Amen. A show of hands, but do not worry. Do we have any South African or Dutch descent people in this room? Okay, plenty. I definitely need to be careful. Two nationalities of people I most appreciate in life are South Africans and Dutch. And I don't know if you've noticed too, but generally the South African and Dutch brothers and sisters will always tell you exactly what they think about a given subject with full transparency, often very black and white or blunt. With such people, you always know where you stand. You always know what differences there are between you and them. There's nothing hidden or in the darkness. I always know where I stand with such people. Have you ever read in the Gospels with a careful eye to observe how Jesus taught in such a direct and precise way? You see, in life it's important to know where you stand in respect to man, but how much better to know where you stand in relation to God 
and to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And fortunately for us, we needn't wonder where we stand, for God reveals this in his word. And you will find the same type of directness in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will waste no words in telling you where you stand with him. He will tell you exactly what you need to hear. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were there in the first century in Israel. And you were there to hear Jesus teach. It must have been an almost out-of-world experience. In fact, we know it was. As Matthew records, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. It was direct. It was powerful. It was captivating. It was discerning speech. And we should not be surprised to learn that when God incarnated into the form of a man, that his speech was such as this. After all, with the speech of the one through whom the world was formed, and by whose power it is sustained and upheld, be found imprecise or convoluted in what he had to say. Here in Luke 15 this evening, I want to show you the way in which Jesus speaks forwardly with respect to the subject of repentance. And specifically, I want you to see how Jesus Christ is the friend and savior of sinners. And that even tonight, he can be yours. And that through repentance of sin. Now we need some structure, some pegs to hang our thoughts on as we move through the logic of this passage. I have three simple headings. First, in verses 1 to 2, I want us to consider Jesus' scandalous company. Secondly, in verses 3 to 6, Jesus' responding parable. And finally, in verse 7, Jesus' scathing application. First of all then, let's consider Jesus' scandalous company. There were many things about the Lord that irritated the religious authorities and the hierarchy of the day about the Lord Jesus. Jesus, like them, you see, was a teacher of Israel. From a young age, as Luke records in his second chapter, Jesus demonstrated a unique knowledge and insight into the law of God and the Scriptures. Uncommon. From the beginning, Jesus was probably on the radar of the religious authorities more than we even realize. We witness many interactions between Jesus and the religious authorities in the Gospels. They used to challenge him on his interpretation of the law concerning the Sabbath. When his disciples would pick grain from the fields, they would insistently seek evidence from Jesus on his authority to say the things that he did. They accused Jesus of blaspheming when he claimed authority to forgive the sins, remember, of the paralytic man. They accused him of performing miracles and the power of Satan. They tried to trap him into making judgments that were not in accordance with the law. Some even tried to stone him for the things that he said. They hated the fact that the crowds flocked and followed Jesus, that people came from all parts of the land to witness, to see him, to hear him. And behold the wonder of the Messiah. Now it's wrong paint all the religious authorities in Israel in Jesus' day with the same brush. But generally, Jesus completely rocked the status quo of the day. He was not popular among the established spiritual authorities. 
And in fact, if you read Matthew 23, our Lord gives a lengthy condemnation against those he refers to as the false shepherds of God's people. So of the Pharisees, Jesus says, Matthew 23, 31, So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? How direct is this? But you know something that really got under the skin, really under the skin of the Pharisees and the scribes? It was the scandalous company that Jesus kept. I heard a story once of a man who walked all the way across the United States of America. Massive journey, and it was a a goal of his to walk across the states. And people came up to him and they asked him, how did you do it with all the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and all of the hurdles you had to cross? How did you accomplish this feat? And he said to them, you know, what was almost the thing that broke me? It wasn't all the mountains and the rivers. It was the sand that got in my shoes and rubbed away at my feet. You know, it was the sand in the shoes of the Pharisees. It was the scandalous company that the Lord kept. It was the way he freely associated himself with people that they would avoid at all costs. Jesus was often found among the outcasts. Those deemed unforgivable, those thought of as cursed, forgotten, unclean, people that the high and righteous Pharisees would want nothing to do with. These people Jesus routinely spent time among, teaching them, healing them, speaking to them with the words of eternal life and of life in the Son who comes into the world. Notice carefully with me again in verse 1, the tax collectors, the sinners were coming near him. They were gathering to Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees there are grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it's not only that Jesus is speaking with them, breathing their ear, thus making himself what the Pharisees considered ceremonially unclean. It was the intimacy, the compassion that the Lord had for such people. The care that he showed. They said he receives them. He even eats and drinks with them. A scandal in Israel if there was ever witnessed one. This man who at one moment might be in the temple among the, in the synagogues. Is it another with the betrayers? They thought of their people, the tax collectors, the sinners, the unrighteous who know not the things of God. And this is an important theme in Luke. That is Jesus befriending such people. In fact, I've seen it before. Luke 5, 29. Levi, one of the disciples, hosts a reception The scandalous company descends upon Jesus, a great crowd. We read there the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Go forward two chapters to Luke 7, and this woman, who is most likely a prostitute, breaks down in tears before the Lord, kissing and anointing his feet with perfume. And there we read Luke 7, 39, and when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of this person, this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Another text is from the account of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Luke 19, verse 7. Today I must stay at your house, Zacchaeus. 
We read again, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. See the compassion and the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ towards the lost. So I want you to understand that sinners in need have a great attraction to Jesus. And he will never turn away a soul who comes to him for forgiveness. Sinners draw near to Christ, not because they find one agreeable to their condition, but one who offers hope despite their sin, despite the way that we are. They come to Jesus believing that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by faith in him there is reconciliation available to God. The removal of guilt. They come having witnessed his words and works and they stay having witnessed the death that he dies to ransom them from their sin. How freely the sinner who recognizes their condition will come fleeing to Christ. As with Levi's reception in Luke 5, they flock from all over to be with him, to hear of the gospel, to learn there is a savior, there is hope in the world. The only way men come to know their God is through him. As with the woman of the streets there in Luke's gospel, ridden with guilt, not a soul to love her, truly none to tell her that God can even have compassion on her. There is none too lost, and so her tears flow freely, for she too has found the forgiveness of the Lord. They come to Christ, as did Zacchaeus, earnestly seeking how they might see him. And when Jesus comes calling, they receive him gladly, as did he. You see, friends, Jesus' scandalous company tells me that those who we might think are the furthest from God, who might never come to faith, can in a heartbeat receive Him and be found in Him. So near to salvation, in just a moment, the Lord, by His Spirit, quickens the heart. Do not forget the parable of Jesus in the preceding section of Luke 14. In Jesus' parable of the dinner, the guests invited to the dinner in Jesus' story were unwilling. And they made excuses. I cannot come. I have new oxen. In modern day, I have a new tractor that I must use in my field. And I must work. Another is, I have married a wife. I cannot join you. One says, I have made a land purchase. I can't be there. So the master of the dinner says to a servant, go into the highways and the byways, bring the poor, the crippled, the outcast, the blind, the lame, bring whoever you can find. Bring and bring them in so they may enjoy my feast that my house might be filled, he says. This, my friends, is the call of the gospel into the world. For many are called and few are chosen. Many are called to taste and see the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. It's so unwilling to come. Yet God's word never returns to him void. In the byways and the alleys, God reaches all of his sheep with the gospel. They hear his voice. They hear the voice of the good shepherd. And now the one who blasphemed and cursed God in the streets weeps in the pews over the Savior. As they consider Jesus the friend of sinners, the one who lived formerly for the delights and pleasures that the world has on offer, which are false delights, now delights only in knowing Christ and being found in Him. 
Jesus, scandalous company. On to our second heading, Jesus' responding parable from verse 3. So he told them this parable. So the religious leaders grumble at Jesus' scandalous company, and this brings us to our next heading. Jesus hears their protest, you see. He hears them. He knows their every thought that they have towards him, and he discerns their self-righteous grumbling. And so as was customary, Jesus employed a parable to respond. A parable, simply put, is an earthly analogy with a spiritual or heavenly meaning. A parable is a word picture used to communicate a certain message or truth. And here we come to a well-known parable of the lost sheep, an easily understood agricultural parable, both in the original setting of Jesus' day and even here this evening, I think. Jesus gives this parable as a response to their protests against his company. So he says in verse 4, let's read again, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Jesus' parable here is laden with Old Testament imagery. In the day, we understand that often the religious establishment frowned upon or did not think much of the occupation of shepherds. For shepherds, their occupation made them unreliable for attendance at worship ceremonies and so on. They weren't well respected. And yet the irony is that it was from shepherding that the leadership of Israel had something to learn. They are exposed by Jesus immediately as the false shepherds in the parable. What's more, in the Old Testament, God describes himself as a shepherd and keeper of Israel. A motif carefully reflected in the kingship of David, who was himself called from being a shepherd boy for his father Jesse to being the king over Israel. The Old Testament in numerous places further reveals that when the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, entered the world, it would be as a shepherd of souls. Ezekiel 34 is one of the classic passages. There in verse 12, as a shepherd cares for his flock. In the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I, says the Lord, will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. Another key text I won't read is Micah 5, 3. But I want you to see how Jesus shows himself as the true shepherd of God's people. See how Jesus' parable, he speaks of being a true shepherd and a true shepherd goes after his lost sheep. Jesus, you see, pursues the sheep of his fold that are lost. If you are in Christ this evening, your very belief is evidence of Christ pursuing you as a lost sheep. Rest assured, Christian, that there is not one drop of sweat or blood that Jesus did not expire or give up to regather his people. He went after them. Wherever he went, he pursues them until he finds them. 
Some of Christ's sheep that he finds, he finds in their youth at a young age. I was talking to Logan earlier on. Our Christian testimonies could not be any more different. I have walked with Christ my whole life. Christ found me in my youth. But for some, he finds them in dark alleyways. He finds them among the sinners and the scoffers and the mire and the muck. And he lays hold of them and he pulls them and he washes them clean. The father's sheep are in all quadrants of society. People from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And here at the dinner table of Luke 15, the good shepherd Jesus Christ has found some sheep as they draw near to him. He will call them into his fold. In John's gospel, of course, the apostle records the famous statement of Jesus, John 10, you know it well, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. In fact, on the same occasion, Jesus went so far as to tell the Pharisees that they did not believe in him because they were not of his sheep. John 10, 26. No friends at the work of Jesus Christ in the world today is the pursuit of his sheep, the elect of God, to bring them his saving work and his benefits. For Christ has befriended the sinner, but he has also died for them. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus is really saying to the Pharisees in this parable, what kind of shepherd would I be if I were not pursuing my sheep to find what was lost and bring them to God? That's what he's saying here. So Jesus is both exposing the Pharisees as false shepherds and simultaneously revealing himself as the true shepherd of God. Charles Spurgeon says of Jesus, the true shepherd, should a physician shun the sick? Should a shepherd avoid lost sheep? Was he, that is Jesus, not exactly in his right position when there drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him? So Jesus pursues his sheep, but I also observe here in the passage that when he finds the sheep, he seizes hold of them and returns them to the flock. I don't know how many of you here are from a farming background. I was raised on a sheep farm in Southland. And I remember the comment I heard of one sheep farmer many years ago. And he said the key to, a la- the key to lasting a lifetime as a farmer was to learn to be a little lazy as time goes on. And what that means is when you're young and you have the energy and the strength, and your back hasn't given out, your knees are still okay, you'll do, a, you'll do certain things on your farm uh, that you can because of your youth. But when you grow a little older, you have a little less energy and your back is a little bit crook. You're having to visit, visit the physio every other week. You learn to grow a little lazy as a farmer, and pay less attention to the details that you might have when you were younger. This is how you can last a long time as a sheep farmer. The illustration I give is to the negative. Jesus knows nothing of this lazy shepherding. In his care and saving of souls, he strives diligently until every soul given him by the Father is secure in a saving knowledge and faith of him. He pursues his people until he finds them. And when he does, he lays hold of them and returns them. 
And the energy he expended in finding those sheep, he will expend over again in ensuring that they shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Return them to the pasture of the flock. So for any one of you who are from a farming background, you will understand when I say that sheep are dumb creatures. They need a shepherd. They're helpless without shepherds. And perhaps you've seen the video clip on the internet which shows a farmer pulling, pulling out one of his sheep out of a crevice along a, a big crevice along a paddock. He grabs the, the, the sheep that's stuck, dangling there, I think, I think it was upside down even with its legs in the air. He pulls it out and he sets it free in the green pastures. And what does the dumb sheep go and do? But it runs down the paddock, launches itself into the air, straight back into the same crevice. Friends, it is not so with Christ. This shepherd who lays hold of his sheep, when he takes you, he takes his people to the safety of the pasture upon his shoulders to ensure that they shall never be lost and never perish, but are safe in his care. In fact, if you are in Christ this evening and you know the Lord at this very moment in time, you are upon his shoulders. He is in the process of carrying you to those pastures, to the glory and to the heaven to come. And he will not lose you. And if he were to put you down, which he cannot, you would for sure find yourself stuck in that crevice again, enslaved to sin once more, without life towards God. Christ is taking us to glory, to be with himself, to have eternal life, and he will see that this work is complete. This is what Jesus is saying here. And he assures us of this work, and in John 10, 29, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You see, those for whom Jesus came to seek and save were given him by the Father. And so Christ will save them, and he shall not fail. And they shall never be lost. If you're a Christian here this evening, having tasted of God's kindness and grace, then Jesus' parable explains your own salvation. He's explaining the purpose for which he came. And if you do not know the Savior even this evening, I want you to know that there is, a, there is one who is the friend and Savior of sinners. And he is near. And he will forgive you if you call upon him. The scriptures definitively say of us that all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And what this means is that men and women are born with a problem. And that problem is sin. We are astray because we are estranged from God. We have committed high treason against the creator. His law written on our consciences we have defiled. His law revealed through Moses' tablets of stone we break daily. God's law says, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet every morning we arise, how often there are idols even forming in our mind and in our hearts as we awake. We are estranged. Our natures are corrupted. Every vile thought, every deceptive act, every wicked action, every hatred, every lie flows from a nature that is fallen. And we live as an offense to our holy creator God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I want you to know, friends, that there is a shepherd sent by God 
to call back sheep gone astray. Can you hear his voice? Can you hear his voice? The shepherd says to the transgressor like you and me, fear not, I have kept the law on your behalf. Believe in me. He says, fear not, I have even laid my life down as a sacrifice. Believe in me. He says, fear not, I have risen again to secure your salvation. Believe upon me. I have ascended on high to mediate for you as your high priest forever. Call upon me and believe in me. None shall snatch you from my grasp. A final point on this heading that Jesus' parable shows us that this shepherd desires to celebrate the rescue of his lost sheep. Look there again, he says in verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. Jesus is here condemning the hardness of heart in the Pharisees. They're unwilling to recognize what God is doing. Their hearts are calloused. And he will do the, Jesus will do the same in the parable of the lost coin that follows and the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. He's saying to the Pharisees, if you really knew God, you would rejoice to see the words and works I perform in the Father's name. You would rejoice that sinners are saved and brought to God for washing, for regeneration, and for new renewal, for adoption, as we heard this morning. But they will not. You see, the true friend of the shepherd will celebrate the power of the gospel and the power of God to save. We come to our third and final point, a little shorter, Jesus' scathing application. Jesus applies the parable in a rather short and direct way to explain what he's said in the parable. Verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What we learn here is twofold. On the one hand, heaven and all of God's creation stands to rejoice over one sinner who repents and turns to God. Jesus repeats the same idea at the conclusion of his parable of the lost coin in verse 10 of chapter 15. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But on the other hand, implied is that heaven and the angels do not rejoice. They are silent when there is no repentance from man. What is obvious is that Jesus associates rescued sheep with repentant people. Rescued sheep are repentant people. Now you ask me, Reese, I need a definition of repentance. In a century long past, preacher writer J.C. Ryle wrote that repentance begins with knowledge of sin, sin before God. It goes on to work out sorrow for sin. It leads to confession of sin before God and shows itself before man through a breaking off from sin and it results in producing a habit of deep hatred for all sin. 
The implication of Christ's teaching is clear. If a man or a woman remains unrepentant of sin, there is no assurance of salvation. You remain until that time a lost sheep. So critical is repentance, which is an acknowledgement and a turning from our sin with respect to receiving Christ, the good news of the gospel. So critical is that the angelic host in the heavenly realm search to see for repentance among man, that they might rejoice. And when a person thinks of themselves as without need for Christ, the heaven's silence is an inner groaning. When a person brings their own good merit and good works to God, heaven despairs at the sight. The angelic host who bask in marble before the throne of the righteous and holy creator, they see our works in the flesh for what they are, worthless, empty, and condemning. Their celebration comes only when the lost sheep cries out, forgive me God, when the sinner says, enough Lord, I cannot save myself. My hands are empty, my mind is corrupted, my heart is astray, my will is godless, my soul is lost to hell. If the Savior does not pursue me, if the Savior does not seize me and bring me to you. God's rescued sheep are repentant people. Observe how the Savior befriends the sinner. See how Jesus comes to eat and dine with people like you and me. Lost sheep. But do not think that Jesus intends to visit the lost sheep, like in here at the dinner table in Luke 15, and then send them on their merry way. Their repentance and faith in the Good Shepherd is paramount. You cannot say you have come to Christ or experienced Christ's saving power if you are not yet repentant of your sin. Be assured that just as there are false shepherds in the world and in our churches, there are equally many false sheep considering themselves as rescued, though without repentance, and as lost and as far from salvation as they have ever been. Paul says to such a one in Romans 2 verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Shall we conclude? Each one of us here this evening has an inexpressible need for repentance towards God. And Christ will speak directly to you on this subject. He will not waver. He will not fluff around. He will associate rescued sheep with repentant people. Do not overlook or ignore what Jesus is saying to you. In fact, back in Luke 13, the very center and heart of what is called the Jerusalem narrative, or from that point in Luke 9:51, where it says, the Lord sets his face towards Jerusalem. As the Messiah turns towards his destiny of the cross of Calvary. There in the center, Luke 13 of that Jerusalem narrative, very, at the very heart of that section is a teaching on repentance. And there Jesus draws before the crowds the, the message that he 
concludes is that if you're not repenting, you're perishing. Now, if you're in Christ this morning, uh, sorry, this evening, your repentance is for your sanctification. Understand this. This is the ongoing work of God in our lives. Repentance will serve your growth in the grace in which we stand, continually falling afresh on the gospel, fully assured that our sins are paid for, but proving unto God the fruit of repentance, that we do grieve our sin that remains. Ongoing repentance for the believer only sweetens the healing balm of the gospel we have already received. We learn to appreciate more and more all that God has done for us. But outside of Christ, friend, outside of Christ, the unbeliever requires repentance to receive their justification that is being declared as right before God. A new positional standing can be yours through repentance of sin and casting yourself upon Christ who died on that cross to save you from your sins. All throughout the Bible, we see this pressing need for repentance. The psalmist writes in Psalm 7:12, If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. When John the Baptist uh, was, came to prepare the way for Jesus, he preached repentance. Jesus launched his own ministry with the same continuing cry. Mark 1:15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. And Jesus commissioned his disciples to proclaim the gospel. Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that man should repent. As their witness continued into all of the world, as recorded in the book of Acts, we find their preaching with the same earnest, Acts 20, 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this evening, if you have come through repentance to know Jesus as your friend and saviour, perhaps you can repeat, along with David the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Shall we pray? Father, as we find elsewhere in your word, our Savior is one who is seated on the throne of God and he is the one who is separate from sinners. So pure and holy was our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are amazed to see him here drawing near to people like us, to sinners, to those unworthy of him. But Father, you have sent the Son into the world for such as us. We find ourselves there, Father, that same dinner table of Luke 15. Christ is drawn near unto us. Father, would you bring Christ to all who may not know him even this evening? And for those who do, might they again be reminded that we have one who is a shepherd of our souls, one who is the friend of sinners such as we. But Father, may we not ignore this call to repentance. May we hear the summons and call of Scripture, repent, that the washing and renewing may come. We ask for this heart. Bring it to us, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you very much, brother. May the Lord grant repentance to us all. Let's stand and sing together, Jesus, friend of sinners. Brothers and sisters, people of God, as you go out into another week, lift up your hearts and minds to that great shepherd, receive his blessing upon you in his love with the words of Ephesians 3. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, now and forevermore. Amen.
Gloria Petri. Jesus, we turn 